going to drive me nuts. I like to walk and talk. How's the volume? All right. Howdy. Howdy. I'm getting a not so good. This is better? All right. I'm going to step back a step. I want to be in your face. Wow. Testy. Can I have that wireless? All right, let's try to do this and see how it goes, okay? I don't want to lose my hearing. I don't want you to have to experience this either. Howdy. Howdy. What a bunch of good Texans you are. <laughs> I flew in from Dallas, Texas today. I'm flying out tomorrow morning, so do the math. I flew here just to talk to you, and this is very important to me. So I went to Texas A&M University, and really, who was it? You went to Texas A&M? Howdy. What year are you? 15 and 16? Alright, I'm class of 2000. We have this love affair. You're not going to understand this. But at A&M you say howdy to everybody and you start every speech by saying howdy and everybody instantly gets silent. So I'm also telling you it's a polite Texan way to say shut up. So, howdy. When I had graduated from Texas A&M, I was 22 years old and I was living in a small town south of Houston called Richmond or Rosenberg, Texas, working for Frito-Lay, I ended up going on my one week of vacation up to New York City. And everybody told me when I got there, see as many shows as you can, have fun. And so the last show I went to was a disco version of Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream. <laughs> so if you know the story, like imagine you took it out of this enchanted forest and you stuck it into like a Studio 54 discotheque, okay? All the songs told through disco music. Granted, at the time, my business card said that at Frito-Lay, I, Jeff Shufflebein, was a corn resource. <laughs> I really, to this day, don't know what that means, and it certainly wasn't helping my game when I was a single young man looking for love. <laughs> so I end up at this show in New York, turns into an all-night disco party, and during the pre-show, I got yanked up on stage by one of the actors, off-Broadway shows are really interactive. They mess with you, right? So they, they bring me up there, pearl snap shirt, I unsnap it, I dance around, I jump down, I high-five the dude. The show goes on, and then when the party starts afterwards, I was blown away by this show, really well-made. Well this, this woman came up, she said, I'm the general manager, this is the stage manager, would you ever audition for this show? I said, ma'am, I'm a corn resource. <laughs> I did not say that. I said, email me, let's stay in touch. A few months later, I called in sick to work, and I flew up to New York, and they auditioned 300 men for a role, and that evening I got to have a private audition outside of what happened earlier for the 14 creators of the show that included me doing some solo work and then being a part of that same pre-show where I had been pulled up on stage. They had me slip out the back when the show started. They came up to me and they said, you got the part, when can you start in the show? I said, oh, okay, well, I probably need to quit my job and sell my car and put my stuff in storage. I should probably tell my parents I'm here. Uh, two weeks, give me two weeks. So I wanna tell you what happened next. I flew home to Texas, I called my parents, my mom answered. I said, can you, uh, can you get dad on the phone? I got something to tell you. And you could hear the air come out of the room. And so my dad gone and I said, guys, I've, uh, I've been in New York City for a couple days. I quit my job at Frito-Lay and I'm going to move to New York to be a disco fairy. 
they were disappointed. <laughs> I moved up there. I was treated like a B-level celebrity. I got to do all this crazy cool stuff. I was in parades. I was in the Hamptons. I was in outrageous shape and I met a ton of celebrities. It was like some people go and backpack Europe and go into debt. I went and danced off Broadway. <laughs> but the reason my parents had that reaction is because I've made that phone call several times in my life. And I can remember another time when I was 19 and I was starting my sophomore year at Texas A&M University. Same story, mom, can you get dad on the phone? I have something to tell you. But this time wasn't so funny. It was that I had just gotten out of jail and that I had been arrested for driving while intoxicated, that I was guilty of the crime, and that it wasn't the only time that I'd ever done it. It was the first time that I'd ever been caught. And my parents were severely disappointed. I was the youngest, or in the youngest, of four kids, all of whom had gone through school there, all of whom had stayed out of jail. And here's their youngest calling after being bailed out of, out of the county jail. I'll tell you that I was so happy the night that I got arrested because I was on a crash course. And that night, I hadn't been in a car accident. I hadn't hurt or killed anybody else or hurt myself. And I had this awakening moment and this epiphany from God that I had to change my life and get back to just being a good person and who God meant, me, meant for me to be. The rest of my friends and family were not predicting that I was gonna change that quickly because I had been pretty wild. Well, it was not even a year later at a Mothers Against Drunk Driving event, a victim impact panel on November 11th of 1998, that I was sitting in a room not much different than this and I remember exactly what chair I was in when all of a sudden uh, this woman was passing around a picture of her daughter who'd been killed on the side of the road by a drunk driver. And when I looked at it, it looked just like a friend of mine from high school. And as I passed it on, I thought, what's the difference between her and my friend? And then what's the difference between me and the guy who killed her? And I couldn't come up with any answers other than this is where I'm sitting right now, so there must be a reason for it. And then all of a sudden, another epiphany and a gift from God was that I knew that I had the momentum and the connections to do something about this. So as I walked out to my car, I couldn't drive because I'd lost my license. My friend picks me up and she says, how did it go? I said, I'm gonna start the best designated driver program in the country and I'm gonna need a lot of help. The next 11 months of my life, that's all I focused on. I ended up taking a totally different approach than everything else that I had studied. And on September 23rd of 1999, so just over 20 years ago last month, we launched a program called Caring Aggies Are Protecting Over Our Lives. The acronym is CARPOOL. In 20 years, that program, even from its very beginning, became the most successful and most efficient program to reduce drunk driving in a college town. To date, it's given over 286,000 free rides home to students in need, not to other bars, clubs, or parties, in a non-judgmental way, with a male and a female in every car, and the cars are rented, and this comfortable environment where we have training and operations manuals, and even the people that get into carpool have to go through a rigorous, competitive interview application process because so many people are trying to get in. It's fascinating that students are giving up their nights and weekends and I was told that I would never be able to pull that off because you'd have to pay them to get them to do this job. Not only did we not pay them, we charged them student dues because it's a student organization so that they pay money to give up their nights and weekends to take care of other people. But we made not only the purpose of it, right? It's a life-saving, life-altering purpose. But even the mechanics of the daily uh, operations really fulfill these people, give them tremendous amounts of responsibility, a chance to make new relationships, a place where they can grow and thrive 
and develop because they're all given that amazing amount of responsibility as fully formed young adults. I say all that because I was told a million times it would never last. It couldn't outlast the founder when the founder graduates. And here we are celebrating the 20th anniversary. Next week I'm speaking, yes. Thank you. Next week I'm speaking at a joint event with Mothers Against Drunk Driving who turned 40 this year, Carpool turned 20. And the other part is Carpool then expanded and for the, le the next three semesters of my college career, we built out the model so that we could hand it to other schools. It's at the University of Georgia, it's at Colorado State, it's at James Madison, at University of Missouri, it's at a couple dozen schools throughout the US, 100% based on that model. So you're probably approaching a million people that have been in that car and many millions whose lives have been impacted because they got to wake up the next day with a brother, a father, their future doctor still living because of this event. But why am I sharing these two crazy stories with you? Well, first of all, if anything hits you tonight, I want you to be able to tell somebody about it and then say you learned it from a disco fairy. <laughs> cool? The other part is, I've just had this really fun career, full of failures and successes, but where I've always taken an unconventional approach to a problem or to an opportunity. And what I've, what I've experienced with the teams that I've worked on is unmatched results. Even to the company I'm with now, eight years ago this week, I started an energy consulting firm with some of my favorite people in the deregulated energy space. To date, we're about to hit our fifth year in a row on the Inc. 5000 fastest growing companies list. We're listed on the Inc., Fortune, and Texas Monthly best places to work in America. And we just three-peated on the Entrepreneur Magazine, most entrepreneurial companies in America for innovation, growth, leadership, and culture. So I'm telling you, we created something pretty phenomenal. And just like when I experienced in Carpool, in that program at A&M, where people were part of something that was bigger than themselves, where human dignity was at the forefront of everything they did, where they had a noble vision and meaningful work, I'm just repeating that same story over and over and getting phenomenal results. But let me keep taking it further. The name of my company is actually just the digit five, not spelled out. I was told you couldn't name a company five, so we went and trademarked the digit five. If you use five, the number after hearing the speech, I get royalties from you, so you owe me. <laughs> the truth is, I didn't think you could trademark a digit either. We named the company five because we were trying to create a level five tribe. And if you ever read the book, Tribal Leadership, it talks about the way that we're raised and how most companies operate in this culture that says, you know, level two is that my life sucks. Level three is that I'm great and you're not. Go read your email that's 20 replies long and see how many people are playing the I'm great and you're not game. Go look at all the ways you were raised in sports, in academics, and in corporate America, or even in your, your careers as doctors or lawyers or whatever you do. Social service workers have an I'm great and you're not mentality on the average. A level four culture is the one that says that we're great and they're not. There's just a competitor, but at least the team unifies. Those are really neat places to be. They're rare, but you can find them. Southwest Airlines is very much a level four culture. And I guarantee that they have moments of level five. And level five is this breakthrough moment where you experience that you're competing with what's possible. It's almost that, that we collectively didn't know we could do something for clients or each other or our industry or for humanity, but somehow the best of all of us produced a result that we weren't even predicting. So our name of our company is actually just a challenge to ourselves to never stop trying to be better for every stakeholder in the model, not the shareholders, every stakeholder, clients, employees, employees' families, vendors, suppliers, the industry, 
which includes my competitors and even the environment. So think about this idea of taking an unconventional approach and having unmatched results. What is something that we hear as Christians, as Catholics, all the time, especially early in our career? Check your faith at the door. Do not bring your faith to the workplace, to the classroom, to the boardroom. Don't bring it there because you will never get the advancement or the opportunities that other people who are strictly focused on the business are going to get. Please don't be Christian. And if you're going to be Christian, certainly don't cross into that line of being Catholic. And whether you've been told this exactly or you just know this inherently, I promise you it's true. It is happening all over the place because I meet with young people. This is my 17th different chapter of YCP to talk to. I know your stories. Even if I don't know yours, I know them because it's happening all over the place. I want you to hear from the disco fairy who's impacted millions of lives through preventing drunk driving and has his own radio show on Catholic radio that you can and should absolutely be authentically in your faith in order to succeed. Not that you might, but it is actually the key to your success and your fulfillment in life, in your career, and in your families. And this divided life that we're forced to lead is exhausting, it's counterproductive, and it's fake. So I want to talk to you tonight about a couple things, and I'm going to give you a few tips, and I'm going to go fast but about how to lead an undivided life, how to be a light in the world that is so desperate for light and so desperate for this conversation. And if you think about the Great Commission that we're called to evangelize the world, how many times is our evangelization effort successful when it's just us talking? It happens, but it happens more in friendship. It happens more when somebody's intrigued by us. It happens more when we don't know that they're watching the way we interact with our boyfriend or girlfriend or coworker or spouse or kids. It happens in the most mundane moments of our life is when we bring people in and it's also when we chase people away from the faith and where people who grew up Catholic don't want to come back to the Catholic faith because they're watching what we do. So I want to talk to you tonight. I'm going to give you five tips. I don't want you to memorize them. I don't even want you to really take in all of them. I'm just praying that something in what I say is meant for you tonight and it might not be what was meant for your neighbor or for, the, for anybody else in this room, but I'm going to talk about a lot of stuff and this echo's driving me nuts. <laughs> if I ever dropped this mic, you could still get me on video. Could I drop the mic and cut this? The echo's... Is, are you cool, Nick, if I drop the mic? Not drop it, that's weird. It's not like I just killed it with a joke. You want mic or... Do you want mic or no mic? No mic. Me too. I already like you guys more. <laughs> I can't be stuck back there. You don't put baby in a corner. <laughs> Thank you. See, you might be younger than me, but everybody knows dirty dancing. <laughs> All right, here's my five tips for you. Number one is, do you know why you exist? And I, that sounds so cliche, but do you know why you exist? Do you know your why? And I'm going to give you a bunch of thoughts about this for a second. Did God put you on earth so you could pump blood and breathe oxygen? Absolutely not. I hope you know the right answer is no. You have to do those things, right? Did God put you on earth to make money and to have a business card with a title on it? Absolutely not. Is that what you wake up every day saying, I have this title on my business card, my bank account looks like this, and I'm going to W-2 this? Absolutely not. 
but you have to make money in order to supply the goods and services for yourself and your family and to give to others. A business, a good business, should also have that same mentality. So think about, and I'm jumping into this conscious capitalism realm for a second, that a business has to make money, but shouldn't exist to make money. Making money is like the blood and oxygen of a business, but a business should be in existence like mine is to impact every stakeholder. The business is oriented towards good. So if you step back and you start to really ask yourself, what does my day-to-day -day life look like? I might be able to say, I exist to glorify God. I exist for fill in the blank. But you've got to ask yourself, am I living that way? Because if I've gone off the rails or if I've oriented somewhere else, then what I'm saying and what I'm doing are incongruent. And I've got to make a change. Through YCP nine years ago, I gave a talk. I was the fourth speaker in the Dallas chapter. And I can remember going through, am I living the priorities I'm about to speak? And the truth was at the time, kind of, kind of not. And so it was so awesome to be surrounded by this YCP community that put an accountability into my life so that I would start living it more and reorienting every time that I got off the rails. And I realized as I got into my marriage, which my marriage is now eight years, almost nine years old, that I was put on earth to carve a path to heaven so that my wife and my kids can be there with me. And then in order for that priority to be true, God has to come before my wife, my wife has to before my kids, my kids before all else, family, friends, co-workers, enemies, neighbors, whatever, fill in the blank, right? But then you have to turn that into behaviors. So I will tell you right now that if, if you right now are sitting there saying, Jeff's speaking truth to me, then just consider what are you going to do? Take an inventory of how you live, take an inventory of why you exist, and then figure out what you need to change. I have a mission statement in my life about my life. I'm going to tell you something right now. I've had a chance to be in a lot of really cool moments. I told you I got to be a B-level celebrity. I had a pull towards ego, towards a desire to be liked and to be applauded. This is in here, I read this every day. I don't need to be great. I just need to love greatly. I greatly love God, then Amanda, then our four kids, our extended families, my friends, coworkers, neighbors, strangers, and enemies. Love is manifested through my thoughts, prayers, and intentions to become gentleness, time together, my tone of voice, Patience, smiles, sacrifice, effort, kindness, service, dedication, and affection. And while I read that, my stomach hurt because I can tell you that I wasn't patient yesterday with my children. All right? So this is my reorienting statement that helps me remember that my behaviors have to match my why. So why do you exist? If you ever think that there's some amount of money or fame or whatever that's going to make you feel great, it's just like a drug and it will make you feel great for a split second but it can never fulfill you. Why do you exist? My second one for you, and remember I'm trying to get you to evangelize yourself so you can evangelize the world, is to be bold. And bold doesn't have to look like the guy who's standing up here dropped the mic so he could shout louder and walk around in front of you. Bold is simply not hiding who you are. So here's an example. Why are you tired today? Because I heard some fairies speak in Detroit and I had to drive 45 minutes home. I was at the Young Catholic Professionals event. I just told somebody that I was at a Catholic event on a Wednesday night and I've opened a door so that if they want to engage me because they were raised Catholic, they have questions about the Catholic Church, they didn't know that I had any faith in my life, they're curious what they can do that's different than what they've been doing every other Wednesday night, I've just given them an opportunity or more likely I've given the Holy Spirit an opportunity to go to work on that person. But we hide these things all the time. And I can remember years ago stopping into the church and I was on the phone with my buddy from college. And if you have buddies from college and friends from high school like I do, 
the relationship is usually different than the adult relationships that I have. It was formed around a different period of my life. So I can remember telling my buddy Kent like, hey man, sorry, I gotta go, I got this thing and I hung up and I walk in the church and I realize what I just said to Kent, I got this thing. So I go back to the car and I call Kent and I'm like, hey dude, that thing is confession. I'm going to reconciliation. And you know what Kent said? I don't care where you're going. I said, but I do. I care where I'm going. And it was so liberating to not hide that I go to confession, this weird Catholic thing. And what's so wild about being bold in your faith, people who don't believe what you believe and are never going to respect you more. They want to be engaged and have conversations with people who actually stand for something, who actually believe in something. They don't want to go through their day talking about the stupid weather and the same old conversations that they could have with everybody in America because there's nothing foundational or fundamental to it. I, my business does business development. We have clients all over the Amer of America and Mexico. Guess what? Most of my clients aren't Catholic, but so many of them want to get in engaged conversations because they're strong in their Jewish faith. They're strong in their Muslim faith. A practicing Buddhist wants to understand my view of something that he views differently. And what's so cool is we can come to this place of mutual respect. We come to this place of community. And along the way, do you know how many people then find that pathway into my office or call me on the drive home and say, you said something today that struck me? Or are you serious that Our Lady of Guadalupe is Mary? Like I thought that was somebody else. And I'm like, yes, there's so many cool things I can tell you about Marian apparitions. I wear socks every single day that have saints on them. Do you know the company Sock Religious? Yes, you do. What sock do you think I'm wearing tonight while I'm speaking? Important for speaking. St. Augustine, he's got a golden tongue, so there's Augustine. What are you wearing, D.L.? Mary, which one? Our Lady of Lords. Yes, sir. It's funny that people will look and say, who's that on your sock? And I'll say, St. Therese, and they'll say, what? <laughs> and then it gets to be fun and evangelical. We say, she's the little flower. And I say, St. Therese of Lisieux. You might know her as St. Therese of Lisieux. <laughs> Come on, man. I stole that from Sock Religious, by the way. They've got puns for everything, but they do send out the socks two by two. I highly recommend you order some. Um, they are such a cool conversation starter. But just be bold. Don't be a jerk. Don't rub it in their face. And don't not respect somebody because they don't believe what you believe. But be bold in the fact that you have, maybe you're even infantile in your faith. You're in the beginning of your journey. Sharing that is a bold thing to share because it's important to you. It's hopefully becoming the most important thing to you, right? So know your why and be bold. My next one for you is that words matter. And I can give you so many examples of this, but if I'm trying to enroll people into a conversation, if I'm trying to engage people into a friendship, I should be pretty intentional about the words that I use and I should start to change that muscle memory of the most normal things that we say to people every day that we don't even think about how it might be landing with them or what place they're in while we're giving it to them. I'm going to give you a really easy one if you're in a relationship, if you're married, try this at home. If your wife is here, then you figure it out or husband's here because you're both hearing this at the same time. At work, we changed the words, I don't care. Because we would be so busy, we're moving so fast, that if somebody went into too much detail, or they were trying to show me the third iteration of something that I thought was already fine, 
When I said I don't care to them, all I did was deflate them. All I did was diminish the value of all the work or all the thought that they put into that conversation. So three words, same amount of syllables, I can say I trust you, right? So just by switching that word to say, Kathleen, I trust you, you got this. Kathleen leaves feeling empowered, that I, I heard her, that she's trusted, right? Now all of a sudden I'm taking the exact same concept that I'm busy, but I've given somebody their power instead of stripping it from them and making them feel like the last three days of work that they were presenting was still very valuable even if I was very busy, right? And you can give a lot of examples of this. So what's neat is muscle memory is a real thing. Your body wants to say, your brain wants to say, I don't care. But hopefully if this one is resonating with you, the next time you say, I don't care, it stings. And the next time you say, I don't care, I trust you, I trust you, you got this, you know? And next thing you know, you're gonna to start to think about other places in your life where the language you deliver lands with the person you're delivering it to differently than what you intended, or certainly if you were trying to play it neutral, it was becoming negative. So think about this sphere of intentionality. Think about your emails for a second. How many times in the last 20 years have I had to sit down with somebody because so-and-so sent an email and it hurt my feelings and this person sent an email and it hurt my feelings and it goes back and forth and I'll say, you know, when you sent this email, you hurt Kathleen's feelings. And the answer is always, I wasn't trying to. And I get that. I bet the sender of that email was not trying to hurt the recipient's feelings. But in intentionality, that's just the middle point. I'm not trying to hurt you is not a productive place to be. That's just somewhere in the middle. I'm trying to have a constructive build-up conversation with you is very different. I might only change two words. I might change the tone. I might reread the sentence once before I click send because I'm actually trying to help you. I'm trying to make you more empowered. I'm trying to give you the best possible information and not a see below and all of a sudden everybody's all mad at each other. So your words matter and your words have the power to destroy and your words have the power to build. Take that into consideration and try to take an inventory you can even do this in small groups, of what words am I using or do, you, do we hear that are having a negative impact? I did this with a big church group in Dallas a couple weeks ago in an exercise and I had them all texted in and one of them said the words that hurt them was when somebody says, you're sanctifying me right now. And I thought that was pretty, pretty wild. Don't ever say that one. So be bold, know why you exist, words matter. Now I wanna change one thought about the internal dialogue that you have. So think about how many times in our lives you say, I have to. Like, oh, I have to drive home in the rain tonight. Oh, I have to wake up early tomorrow for a deposition. Oh, I have to babysit my nieces this weekend. I mean, fill it in, right? I have four kids. My oldest turned six this month, or in November. Six, four, two, four months, okay? And get three out of my four kids in the middle of the night. I got to hold them, I got to comfort them. I've had the chance to clean up puke on me. I've had the chance to go and clean up entire beds when I, it's my third time that night to be up in the middle of the night. And when I get to do those things, when I get to be present for those people, when you get to have a long drive home because you heard a speaker and you got to make new Catholic community connections, when you get to wake up early to go to your job, you know how many people right now are sleeping out here and it's pretty cold, would give anything if they got to wake up in your bed and got to go sit in traffic, right? What a blessing our lives are that we get to do all these things. I get to lose sleep because my friend is depressed and needs somebody to come and sit with them after YCP is over. I get to. If you can change this mentality, the whole world starts to change. And guess what? 
whether it's the good times or the bad times, joy is very different than happiness. And joy starts to shine through and people start to see joy and they start to gravitate towards joy. And this is about your spiritual journey, but it is also about the fact that YCP and you being here and what you're doing in your communities, you are building up that evangelization. So it's incumbent upon you to find ways to bring other people into that fold and to sign up for the continuing education that is your personal development in the world that we live in. So that's number four. Number five is about commitment and it's gonna have a lot of pieces to it. So we'll see if I can blow through this. Read this really weird quote on a coffee cup one time and. The author's probably an atheist, so I won't give any credit or even quote it right, but it said, the irony of commitment is that it is deeply liberating. That the act of commitment is deeply liberating. It frees you from the internal tyranny in your head that parades it around and positions itself as rational hesitation. So think about this. Committing is the way that I can be free. You can already see this. By committing the day I met my wife, and by the way, I asked her on a date because I told her we were supposed to get married. I said, I think we're supposed to get married. Why don't we go on a date? She's class of 11. Um, and she said, okay. That moment of my life was one of the most freeing moments of my life because I was done dating and now I was into the next chapter of my life. The same thing happens at work whenever you commit to a job or a project and you quit looking over your shoulder, you get the freedom of being really great and focused and your best self at something and not distracted by that negative energy of how come so-and-so has a better project and am I, am, should I be working somewhere else? And I get it that your job's changed, but I'm just saying commitment has a freedom in it. Think about the commitment that happens in faith. If I sit here and say the Catholic Church is okay because I was raised in the Catholic Church, but then I start going through all this stuff like the Catholic Church doesn't have good coffee bars in the back, and the Catholic Church, they say all this stuff about Mary that couldn't possibly be true, and you know the Catholic Church, uh, they talk about all this stuff happening during the Eucharist, but I don't know that I believe it. I'm in this struggle. And there's so many amazing people. Look at my socks, St. Augustine, and all these amazing church doctors and fathers and priests and bishops and people who've come before us to help lay this groundwork that none of those things have to be the challenge. We should be free to be in complete relationship with Jesus Christ. We should be free to be completely into our faith and not grappling with this cafeteria Catholic stuff. And don't get me wrong, if you want it, there's plenty of news to make you go crazy trying to figure it all out. But there is such a freedom that comes from being 100% bought into your faith. So right now I want to talk about your faith journey and this commitment timeline. And I'm going to give you the idea of a banquet, much like we have today. If you are spiritually dead, that's a different conversation. But I want to talk about the first stage of this where somebody is spiritually asleep. Somebody is sitting at this incredible banquet. It's colorful. There's lots of people. There's noises. And they're not even looking down the table at what else is there. They're spiritually asleep. So they're going to eat the thing that's right in front of them. They're eating it because you need sustenance. It's just the thing that you do. Other people are doing it. And to me, in your faith life, that looks like you mostly go to Mass on Sundays. You kneel when you're supposed to kneel. You, when you're praying, sometimes pray. Most of the time you're going through the physical motions of what it looks like when somebody's praying. You might say stuff like, I'm praying for you, praying for you, bud. But you don't pray for the person. You type, I'm praying for you on a, a post. Yeah, right? You are? So you're going through the motions. You're spiritually asleep. You need an encounter with Jesus Christ. You need to go on a retreat. You need to go on either a retreat where you're surrounded by community or a silent retreat. You need to go a meditation 
on a Bible verse. You need to give yourself opportunities for God to speak to you in prayer. Don't know how to pray? Tell God you don't know how to pray. Stay in that moment for as long as you can and then tell God again you don't know how to pray. You're not sure what to pray for or pray about. Take Psalm 46. Be still and know that I am God. Repeat that over and over. Be still and know that I am God. And then shorten it. Be still and know that I am. Be still and know. Shorten it all to where you're just repeating the word be. Be. And then build it back up. Be still. Be still and know. Be still and know that I am. Be still and know that I am God. And give yourself moment after moment so that you can encounter Christ. Because until you do, you're likely to stay spiritually asleep. It might happen during Mass. It might happen in the moment of taking the Eucharist. It could happen in tragedy. It could happen in a family change. But my advice to you is don't wait for it to just happen to you. Seek Christ. Ask others how they found that encounter, that moment, so that they went past being spiritually asleep. And so then you can get to stage two, which is being curious at that table, tasting, sampling, this is somebody at the buffet who's willing to try a bunch of different stuff, but they're not all the way bought in. So it might be like me when I was a kid, I kind of spit some of the food out and stick it on my napkin because I don't want to be rude to the host. And I'm certainly not going all the way down the table to see what other flavors are there. But this is somebody who is always going to church on Sunday. Somebody who's probably involved in some sort of uh, social circles, right? They maybe go to a young adults club. They maybe show up to YCP events. It's somebody who would occasionally maybe flip on a, pod, a Bishop Barron podcast or whatever the case may be. They're engaging and they're sampling and they're liking it, but they're not all the way bought in. Spiritually, that person needs to find a place to go deeper, right? Find something in the faith, not everything, because that's like a New Year's resolution. You're sure you're going to work out seven days a week and, you know, don't eat any sugar. Good luck for four days of that, right? Don't do everything. Why don't you pick one thing? Could you do a rosary the five days of the week that you're going to and from your job site? Could you start attending daily mass once a week? You've never been to daily mass before. Find one. Could you, could you start making confession a monthly part of your life? Could you, instead of flipping on whatever you're going to listen to on the drive home, listen to a Catholic podcast or radio station every day on the drive home to detox from the work day? Like, could you find places where you're, in fact, in the afternoon, Catholic Answers. I got most of my apologetics by listening to the answers on Catholic Answers. The same question would be answered 20 times in about a four-month period. And the 20th time, I'm still gaining from the knowledge that I was learning on that, that podcast. So go deeper somewhere so that you can get into it, so that you can start to really enjoy the feast that's in front of you, that is your faith journey, so that you can go to the next level. The next level is somebody who is just consuming, right? Trying everything on the table, loving it, filling up so fast. It's like when you have sushi and you want another roll, but you just ate so fast. Like you want more and more and more. And that's somebody who is truly praying for everybody that's ever come across their Facebook post. There's somebody who is absolutely going out of their way to engage in meaningful prayer out loud with friends in small groups, with spouses or significant others. It's somebody who is getting deep into a study, right? You're taking on a study, you're doing some sort of uh, work together in the community. It's like the most comfortable place you could ever be as a Catholic. You get to consume the greatest stuff in the world. You get to be in your faith, the people around you, it's like safe. You're in this like, you're in the zone. But you got to be careful because if you stay there too long, you're not owning up to the calling that you have because that is spiritual gluttony. You're consuming 
you're taking in, it's cool, I hope you get to experience it if you never have, it's pretty awesome. But you have to be called out of that, right? You have to then get outside of yourself. So the next stage of being now a disciple maker would be to actually then go out, right? Go out could be ministry with the homeless. And ministry doesn't necessarily have to have a formal title. It could be your just work and effort with the homeless or it could be a program. It could be, where's Mark? Mark leave? He went out the door. It could be St. Paul Street evangelization, right? Going out and serving the community. But did he just make a noise at me? All right, anyways. I don't need him. I was just talking about St. Paul Street evangelization. I gave you a plug, Mark. Where are you at? Think about going out on the, the people that are ready for it to prison ministry. Other people are just going out and they're ready to have this conversation and be attacked for their faith. And I mean attacked spiritually. I don't mean attacked physically. So get outside of yourself. And then when you're ready to go from being a disciple maker to being a maker of disciple makers, YCP is part of that. The ministries that you're involved in are part of that. The ministry that I do by putting myself on the radio live as a business owner and sitting here on something that's gonna be broadcast across whatever social media platforms is part of that. In order to, to thrive in that environment, make sure that you have spiritual direction. Make sure that you have a confessor and a spiritual director because the attacks, they're gonna start here and they're gonna come hardcore and they're not gonna stop and you're gonna be getting them from everywhere. But with the right spiritual mentorship, direction, and of course reconciliation, you can embolden yourself to be a maker of disciple makers. YCP is something really special. I've spoken at many of these chapters. This is not the answer to what the church needs or what young adults need, but it is an answer and it is working. So I am telling you right now that you're surrounded by people that are also here for some reason tonight. Some people for their first time, some people have been here since day one. Some people are board members, some people are exploring their faith that could be reverts. Some people in here could be your spiritual guide as you're getting going again because they could hold you accountable. They could give you the apologetics. Who knows? But I'm just saying you're surrounded by people in an environment right now that are engaged in the same conversation you are and you're sharing an experience right now. I would challenge you that when you recognize somebody from here or if you already know somebody that you're sitting by or that's in here, when this is done, Instead of asking, what are you going to do on Saturday? Ask somebody, what's something that you took away from tonight's talk that is going to change in your life? Or what is something that hit you tonight that you've been dealing with or you've, been, you've decided to challenge yourself with? Is there any way that I could pray for you after tonight's talk about something that you want to be different in your life or that we could become accountability partners on so that we check in for the next month, just every Wednesday, on the, the one week anniversary of this moment. But go deeper so that you can go outside of yourself and evangelize others. How am I on time? I'm gonna tell you one more story real quick, okay? My son was born on June 24th. Full term pregnancy, fourth kid, always C-section for the last three. And uh, we knew if we had a boy, we'd name him Ambrose, and a girl, we'd name her something else. But we didn't know the gender, and we knew that I'd have this cool moment where my kids would run out and say, it's a boy or a girl, and I'd say the name. Well, my baby came out. They showed my baby boy to Amanda, and she's drugged up. She kind of sees it's a boy. And they do the thing that they do to all babies. They slap them around and wipe them down. 
and then they put oxygen and they slap them around, they put oxygen. And I, I couldn't hear him crying and I was like, this is getting awkward. And after about 20 minutes, they called the NICU nurse back in. The NICU nurse looked at him and said, he's going with me and you are too. And I said, okay, uh, baby, I think I'm going with him. I'm gonna call your mom back here. So I called Amanda's mom, that all happens. I was like, man, I'm really disappointed. I really wanted this moment where my wife got to have skin to skin with this baby. So I was super sad. And then I was sad because I wanted my kids to have this moment. And I was like, are we gonna be back there for a couple hours? And the woman's like, oh, you don't go for the, you go to the NICU for a couple days. Nobody ever goes for a couple hours. Like you're going there and you're gonna be observed. I was like, oh man, like I'm really not gonna see any of this moment. So then I realized that my wife was in a recovery room, then she was gonna be further away and I was gonna be with this baby. And I was just crying because I wanted my wife and my baby to be together. Like I wanted that bond. Well, then they took the oxygen off and put on a CPAP. Then they took off the CPAP and put in an intubator. Then they picked me out and put in another intubation and used a different ventilator, a high power one. Then they said, oh, we're gonna move your baby to this other part of the NICU because there's other babies like them. And I was like, what? I get there, my baby went to the sickest part of the NICU and they brought in this new machine called an oscillator that put six breaths of air in his chest every second. They paralyzed him, sedated him, gave him uh, fentanyl, um, dopamine, and they were blasting his lungs with air so much they said his lungs never opened. Brittle, shut, small. They did surfactant twice. They did everything they were supposed to do. And then they were pushing so much air they started tearing his lungs. So then they started putting tubes into him. And I looked at my lifeless baby shaking because they were putting so much air into him. And there was tubes all over him. And I would hold his hand, cry that his mama wasn't there. And I would hold his hand to my lips and I would pray with him so that he was praying with me. I wanted to feel his hand on my lips. I took pictures of every tube and every part of him because I didn't want to forget this moment because it was going badly. At midnight, I had cried so much that I couldn't see straight and I told my wife to take over a shift and I went to go see my wife. I fell asleep and 20 minutes later, the NICU doctor had walked 10 minutes over there and is standing in the room and he says, wake up, get a wheelchair for your wife, you have to come see your baby. And I said, are you talking about end of life? He said, your baby's the sickest baby in the NICU. I'm telling you, you have to get down here because we've done everything we can. I take my wife down there, I always never met our child. And I put her in the room and she meets baby Ambrose and sees his face and can't interact with him, can't hold him, can barely even touch his body because there's so many tubes coming out of him. And they said that he had leveled off enough that he wasn't gonna die that moment. And after about an hour of this, they sent my wife up to her room. I started texting a good friend of mine who'd become a priest later in life. He juggled his whole schedule. And when Ambrose was 24 hours old, we did an emergency baptism. When after that, the doctor met with me and my wife a few hours later. Her message to us was, we can't do anything. Everything was done yesterday. Now it's just a matter of either the drugs are gonna kill your baby or your baby's gonna outgrow these machines, but there's nothing else for us to do. And we were devastated. I had everybody in the world texting me, right? What, do you have a boy or a girl? What's going on? People obviously at work and really close to me knew, but the world didn't know. So I said, babe, I'm gonna write this post about the joy of our new son and then I'm gonna ask for people of good faith to pray. And I posted it on Facebook and I sent an email and of course you know what happens on church groups and apostolates sending it around. That was 11.58, my baby was 32 hours old. The next x-ray was scheduled for 4 p.m. The doctor was getting ready for the next x-ray and she said, after the next x-ray I'll say goodbye to you, I'm going on vacation for 10 days. She goes, I pray that you guys are still here when I get back. She was just saying, I hope your baby's still alive. She comes and gets us, my wife had finally come back down again and she said, I need you guys to come in this room. And this doctor started crying. 
and she said, I want to show you something. Your baby's lungs have opened up for the first time. We didn't do anything different. And I'm not trying to give you false hope. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. She said, I'm not trying to give you false hope. I'm trying to tell you that I lost sleep last night praying for your baby because I can't figure out what's going on here. And I could tell you that I knew what was going on, that medically they found a way for my baby to not die. And it was the power of prayer and the multiplicity of prayer that caused my baby to live. When Ambrose turned eight days old, they said, Amanda, do you want to hold him? And I was sleeping days and staying up all night. And she said, I'm not holding him until Jeff gets here. So they sent somebody to the house to drive me up there. I get up there and she holds our baby for the first time. And it was heaven on earth. On day 16, Ambrose got released with no medical anything, no follow-ups, no anything. He's a miracle baby. Thank you. The next day, my kids came home from my parents. They were just there for one night. And in 30 seconds, the first 30 seconds of them knowing him, they kissed him 17 times on the greatest video of my entire life, starting with the two-year-old Pax. Kiss, kiss, kiss. Amelia, kiss, kiss. Lorelai, kiss, 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 kiss. Their button heads are kissing him so much. I want you to know something. There wasn't a moment of that journey that I bartered with God, that I said, why me? That I tried to figure out, you know, what did we ever do wrong? All it was was that Christ put joy in my wife and I, and that didn't take away the tears. It didn't mean that I wasn't exhausted, sad, and stressed. But I will tell you that there was no part of it that was ever anything other than God's will and our acceptance of His will. And so when I tell people that you don't need to wait till you're retired to get serious about your faith, you have no idea what life is going to punch you or me with next. But without a growing faith, without a commitment to why I exist and to that freedom of being in full relationship with Christ and not bartering with which parts of the church I like or don't like, I personally would have struggled so much in that moment and probably been in therapy right now. But instead, I'm in a moment of whether he came out of that hospital or not, or not acceptance of God's grace and love. And I cherish not only every second of getting to be Ambrose's father in that hospital room when Amanda was in a different part of the hospital, but I get to be his dad right now. And I get to call Amanda when I get to my hotel and check in on their night. And I hope that you find a way. And I pray that you are touched to grow in your faith, to get the chance to be the human being that God created you to be for yourself, for others, and for his kingdom. And to experience that true joy of Christ that has nothing to do with what is happening in the outside world. And I ask that you'll do the same and pray for me. Thank you. I like to keep it light on a Wednesday evening. <laughs> thank, you, thank you very much. Yeah, I was not a disco fairy, so I need to use the microphone. I can't project my voice that far. Fair. So, wow, isn't Jeff awesome, guys? I'm so grateful that we can share him with you tonight on, on so many of his different his levels. His faith is absolutely uh, astounding. I know from when I was, I happened to be on Facebook right before one of our YCP events, and I had seen that story, and that was, uh, we, had, we had a YCP team right for you. Thank you. Well. It worked. So, God be glory. Uh, and now it's question and answer time. So if you have any questions after <laughs> that great story, uh, you're welcome to text them into 313-528-0101. Uh, and we'll try to learn more about uh, how, how Jeff can help us all out. We've got a few questions here already. Uh, the first one being, 
What's your best advice for young leaders uh, focusing on impact of co company culture? So that's a great question. I think it's daunting sometimes when you think, oh, I can't impact a culture because I'm not the leader, I'm not the owner, I'm not the manager. But the truth is, every one of us is impacting culture right now in everything that we do. We're all parts of tribes. You have a influence on the people right around you, how you talk to them. So the smallest drops can make the biggest ripples. Have you ever been at a party, and especially when you were young, and seeing somebody who was laughing a whole bunch and you were gravitating like, I want to, what are they laughing about? Well, I, can I be part of that conversation? The exact same thing happens with good company culture. That when you're part of real conversations and you're experiencing something that's, um, uh, it's like a shared experience together and it's a growth experience, people start to notice. Maybe not overnight, but people really start to notice. And the first time in a corporate environment that I can remember being very intentional about culture was when I picked a small group of people and asked if they wanted to read a book with me. We read Good to Great. And when we were reading that book, we started changing our language. We were talking about the hedgehog concept and the flywheel and all these different chapter titles. And people would ask us what we were talking about and we shared with them. They would say, well, how do you all know this? And we'd say, we're reading this book. Probably two or three people caught up to us and started joining us. We never even, <laughs> we didn't even invite them in the group. They just wanted in. Well, then we just made it part of our company. And next thing you know, the sales meeting that was just salespeople before had operations and credit and collections and people showing up. Every sales meeting, we talked about the book we were reading. And so what was funny is we ended up knowing more about other people's part of the business and they knew more about the sales department just because we started in a very small way impacting culture. And you can say the same thing about language changes or how you spend your time. You could even say it about if you're used to sitting in a little huddle room and having one-on-ones, go for a walk and do something healthy. Then sometimes people come along for it and I guarantee your conversations are more enlivening when you're walking and they're more uplifting and positive and it's easier to talk about real things than when you're sitting in the same conference room you sat in a hundred other times. So start small and recognize that you're really just trying to influence the people that you can and not the entire company. It's weird when you don't know who asked the question, because I like to make a contact, but I'm like staring at you to see who asked that question. <laughs> okay. Uh, another question says, we touched upon the radio show, and they were wondering what, you, what the radio show was about, and your most interesting guest. Awesome question. So uh, a little over three years ago, I finished giving a talk to YCP in Houston, and the next day I was at a mass at St. Mary's in College Station, Texas, and I started crying, and my wife said, what's going on? I said, uh, I think God's calling me to do a lot more speaking about faith and a little less about just leadership and culture. She said, okay, then I'm going to start praying that you don't have to go away from the family for too many overnights, right? I said, great. And the next week, the Catholic radio station in Dallas, Texas called and asked if I wanted to have my own show every month. And then they said that they moved their office from the middle of Dallas to Las Colinas. I work in Las Colinas. They moved in the building next door to mine. We share a parking lot. And um, so... <laughs> Three years ago, God just gave us an answer to everything. And uh, they said I had to pitch them a show. So we titled it Undivided Intention, which is we gotta live an intentional way of an undivided life. So the, the concept of the show is I interview and talk with friends, like people in this room, about the practical ways that we can lead with faith in every aspect of our life. Faith, or family, finances, friendship. Um, we'll talk about anything from as gruesome as somebody dealing with the tragedies of their childhood to the struggles of trying to get pregnant to 
terminating an employee at work to raising daughters in today's world. Like we talk about everything, but it's not historical or apologetic or um, too philosophical. It's really the most practical conversation and not a whole lot different than what we just experienced here tonight. Um, my best guest, tough one. What I've started doing is not letting people prep with me. We just get in the room and let the Holy Spirit take over. And I've found that when people are willing to be raw and vulnerable, we have shows where I've cried many times on the air because I'm, I forget that I'm on the air. Uh, one of my favorites was a gentleman who, his father was a serial molester who had molested hundreds of people. And he had, when he was 18, he figured all this out and went off to Rome and was partying all night and going to mass each day and had this moving, listening to JP2 do the stations in the Colosseum where he converted and decided he would be authentically Catholic the rest of his life. His father and his mother both went to prison for a little over 20 years. It's nasty, the stories that go on behind the scenes that I'm not going to share with you tonight. But what was so beautiful is that he started his own like personal apostolate to say that when a perpetrator is caught, we talk badly about the perpetrator, we talk with sorrow for the victims, but nobody ever talks about the children of the perpetrator. And so even when Jared from Subway did his thing, this gentleman, my friend, was reaching out to Jared's kids because they're the lost people in that crazy media circus that happens around it. And I'm telling you, that show changed my life. I got text messages from everybody I know that was listening that some of them were grappling with, I don't know what to do right now because this shook me to my core. So being authentic and vulnerable is one of the most important parts of life for making human connection, by the way. Next, do we have another, more time for more, Nicholas? Uh, I think we do that approach. All right, let's keep going. Uh, one was if you had to give a challenge about living something Catholic in the workplace, what would you place that challenge? Uh, I'll give you two. <laughs> one that's so funny, but it goes a step further. Say Merry Christmas to people. When Christmas time, don't do it yet. <laughs> but if somebody says it to you first, Try saying God bless you. It's really wild because people get so struck by God bless you. It feels so personal. If somebody said Merry Christmas to you, it's rarely, if ever, going to offend them. I hope nobody's offended by God bless you. People that don't even believe in God like, still usually like blessings. But say God bless you to somebody and see what happens to that dialogue. Some people will just walk off and kind of do that like, do I look at him? What do I do? But a lot of people will stop dead in their tracks and say thank you and God bless you and you start a totally different relationship. So try that one. Um, my other one is whether it's just a prayer card or a rosary, find one thing that's truly part of your Catholic identity that, that you embrace, right? If you're not somebody who prays the rosary, don't have a rosary out. But if you're somebody who prays the rosary and you can talk about how in the rosary you often find the answers to the things you're grappling with at work or in home life, People will ask you what that is, or what are these beads, or what do those beads do? And now you have an open opportunity to share how the rosary and your interaction with the rosary has impacted your life. And it's, it's a really cool way to connect, so. And then uh, the last question. Have you noticed a difference being Christian in your leadership compared with other leaders that may not be as about the faith? Yeah. Um, the short answer is yes. The difference, I would say, is 
I work with leaders that will follow the same pattern that I do of human dignity, love in the workplace, solidarity with the poor. Um, I'll give you a real example of this that happened just the other day. Conscious capitalism is this really cool movement started by the founder of Whole Foods and really powerful companies. And I get the chance to go to the CEO summit that's 230 of like my business mentors sitting in a room having lunch and speakers and all this stuff. And I heard a speaker talk about tragedy in her life and how she started building homes for uh, the impoverished, 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 I can't say, the poor people in South America. And she made a statement that kind of blew me away. She said that she was gonna do one home, then 10, and then she got to 100, because she had so much pain that she said my purpose had to be bigger than my pain in order to be meaningful. And I was like, my purpose is Jesus Christ. Like, there's nothing bigger than that. There's no pain bigger than that. And there's a, a bunch of us that are in that room that are Catholics. There's a bunch that are Christians. We all like connect with each other in different places. And I was sitting there listening, I was like, if you could just add the word Jesus to this conference, you would have the social teachings of the Catholic Church in business, right? The vocation of the business leader.